For November 30th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Twas homeward bound one night from the deep Swinging in my hammock I fell asleep I dreamed a dream and I thought it true of Lord Franklin and his gallant crew with a hundred seamen he sailed away or the frozen To seek a passage around the pole Where we poor seamen Do sometimes roll Through cruel hardships they rarely stroll but the ship on mountains of ice was drawn. Only the Eskimo in his skin canoe was the only one that's ever. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Although it doesn't often make headlines for its energy transition efforts, Ireland is one of the more advanced countries in the world in its embrace of renewable energy. It generates about 27% of its electricity from renewables, of which the majority is wind, and has set a target of obtaining 40% of its electricity generation from renewables by 2020. But it's also one of the worst offenders on a per capita basis from a climate standpoint, being heavily reliant on imported fossil fuels and low-grade domestic fuels like peat. And because it's an island with limited transmission connections to England, it can be an interesting case study in energy transition as it explores the right balance between relying on its domestic renewable resources and investing in larger, expensive transmission links to the rest of the European grid. Other islands, like the Hawaiian and Caribbean islands, ultimately have no choice but to run a fully self-contained grid because transmission links to the next major land body would be impractical. 
But Ireland has those options, and it will be very interesting to see how they proceed with their transition. Ireland is also an interesting example because it has had to recover from its large exposure to the financial sector meltdown of 2008 via the mortgage-backed derivative bubble, and now it will have to contend with the many consequences of Brexit. Along with those events, public opinion about energy transition has waxed and waned, and public officials have had to adapt to new realities and new strategies in engaging with the public about transition. In all, I think it's a very interesting set of circumstances and potentially offers useful lessons to the rest of the world, including the U.S. So to help us understand these complex realities, today we're speaking with Eamon Ryan, the leader of Ireland's Green Party and a member of the Communications, Climate and Energy Committee in the Irish Parliament. He's a longtime supporter of energy transition and more than a little bit of an energy wonk with an unusually deep grasp of the data and the physics of energy. He is speaking with us directly from the Emerald Isle. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Eamon, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm glad to be on it. So for starters, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work in support of Ireland's energy transition? Well, I suppose I come of it from a political vein. I'm leader of the Green Party here in Ireland. I'm a member of the Irish Parliament and I'm on the committee with responsibility for energy, climate change and communications. We kind of bring the digital revolution and the clean energy revolution together in our government and in the parliament, which I think is a good mix. I'm former Minister for Energy and Communications, for which I was from 2007 to 2011. And I've done a lot of work in the last five years with an organisation in London called E3G, where we're engaged in climate diplomatic, I suppose, work. So I would have done a lot of work with E3G on European energy union policies and on the decarbonisation of Europe effectively. So I suppose I have a particular interest in Ireland, but I have a very keen interest as well in what's going on in the European Union. That's where I've worked more than anywhere else. Oh, good. So you've had a, quite a front row seat then at how the sausage is made there with EU climate policy. I know enough to know how little I know, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So circa 2007 to 2009, you were involved with framing up Ireland's climate plan. And I think we'd be interested to know, like, what are some of the lessons you learned from working on that? Or, or if there are any useful insights you can share that might help those of us who are trying to do similar things elsewhere right now? I mean, or actually more to the point, I'm wondering if there's anything you can share that might help those of us who are working on climate issues here in the U.S. states that have been resistant to energy transition. Well, firstly, a thing I'd say is was I was lucky in 2007, 8, 9, we had a very strong political leadership in Europe, and that really helped in terms of setting the overall climate targets. We wrote fairly ambitious climate legislation, renewables legislation, and I think that is important. When it came down to a smaller country like Ireland, it helped that we were framing it within a wider European approach. And I suppose the same would apply to the states. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff happening at state level. My experience from the 2007, 8, 9, 10 period was when you can combine that with federal action, it really helps. And okay, the European Union is different. It's not quite federal, but it was, there was very strong leadership. There was clever kind of politics from the European Commission. And I found my place on the European Council, actually, which is where the European energy ministers meet, most useful. Um, I think it was a time when we were actually able to do a lot. We doubled renewable electricity power here. Um, we made some fairly significant advances in terms of energy efficiency in buildings. We we radically ramped up building standards and we introduced a fairly extensive retrofit scheme for buildings. 
And also, I think we were probably one of the first countries to build a nationwide grid of plug-in points for electric vehicles. We were kind of fairly progressive on what I see as a very interesting area, which is the interaction, as I said, between digital revolution and the energy ones. So we have a lot of technology companies here. We have a fairly advanced distribution grid. And I think if I was looking back at what worked in my time there, a lot of it was in that kind of space of getting the data system and the grid systems right. It's not very glamorous, but it's kind of important. And last but not least, I kind of I said that it was kind of useful that there was European policy at the time. My experience again in terms of getting a lot of stuff done is we had the advantage that most of the actors and agencies that are critical were all on the same page. So most of the utility companies here, most of the grid companies, the regulator and the transmission system operator they kind of had a common understanding, partly because it was coming from European legislation, but also because there was reasonably widespread political consensus on the kind of move of Ireland to a low carbon approach. That when you get those circumstances, when you get that environment where you get business, government and the regulatory authorities kind of of one mind in terms of the direction that's been taken. Actually, I, the lesson I learned is, is that you can do stuff. Like we did reduce our emissions. We did increase renewables. We did see fairly significant advances in efficiency for a variety of areas. And I think I put it down to as much as anything else, that kind of slight certainty and, and investment certainty you get when you get different actors kind of singing about the same hymn sheet. That's, I suppose, one of the, one of the lessons I have is that we can do this transition but it needs that sort of cooperative or, or collaborative sense of common purpose to make it happen. That is probably my biggest lesson. If everyone's rowing in the same direction, you can go fairly fast. Yeah, well, yeah, it certainly helps. But beyond the sort of the top level support there that you enjoyed, how do you go about sort of coalition building at the rank and file level of just everyday citizens? I think that's probably the key question, because I think maybe even since that time from about 2010 onwards, I think both in Europe and in Ireland, and I'm not blaming any one political party or, you know, saying, uh, but I think in that time, we probably lost that confidence. We lost the kind of regulatory and certainty. And I think there's a variety of reasons. One was the financial crash kind of took a lot of confidence out of European policy in general. Secondly, I suppose the shale gas revolution kind of shook up everyone. People were starting to fear the competitive implications for that, even though renewables were coming down in price at the same time. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, I think the thing we learned maybe is that we hadn't paid enough attention to getting the public support. You can only do so much on existing political capital if you don't replenish that in terms of getting public buy-in for what you're doing, then you start to run out of ground fairly quickly. And I think one of the issues maybe around that period, 2010, 11, 12, it wasn't just the financial crisis slightly stalled investment. It was the high cost of energy, the high cost of oil and gas at that time started to bring the issue of competitiveness and the issue of fuel poverty into play. And I think for a variety of reasons, also because COP in Copenhagen didn't work, we lost that public confidence and public support. And actually, if you don't have that, you find you lose the political capital fairly quickly and you lose that certain regulatory environment that I talked about. So I think one of the biggest lessons if I was doing something differently, I think it would be to start engaging the public in a much wider consultation process to really come at it rather than a top-down telling people what to do, 
asking people for help, explaining them the various options, and they'd be looking for the public to come to solutions in a variety of different ways, rather than just thinking you can do it on a top-down approach. And I think a lot of people have learned that maybe over the last five or six years. I think we're only starting to rebuild the public support for action on climate. And I think we do need to make sure we learned that lesson, that it's not a preaching exercise, it's a kind of involving people exercise. And I think if we get that right, everything else will flow fairly quickly. Well, I think that's a very important insight, especially in light of the recent U.S. election. It sure is. I mean, we're all fixated on that. But I think in some ways, I think the sense I have is that even though at a federal level in the states, there may be a a stalling now or, or kind of less ambition, I think in some ways we've gone over a a crossing point where I think it'll be hard even for federal action to stop some of the changes that are taking place because it does actually, it works in cities, it's working at state level, and it is now becoming the better economic option to go the low carbon route. The fact that solar and wind have come down in price so significantly means that it's a different ballgame now than it was five or six years ago. We don't need so many supports. We probably need just the right market conditions to make it happen. And and that gives me some confidence that even if the new administration in the States doesn't help, I'm not too sure how much you can hinder the progress that's starting to take place. I couldn't agree more. And I think we will in a bit talk a bit more about sort of the dynamics of the U.S. election versus, you know, what's going on politically in Europe. But Mm. I know you're a bit of a data wonk on this stuff. And of course, that's uh, something that this show loves to talk about. So I want to talk a little bit about what kind of renewable resources Ireland has and just sort of where Ireland's own efforts toward energy transition might be able to go. So can you just kind of give our listeners a little bit of an introduction as to what Ireland actually has in terms of its current renewable resources and where you think it might be able to go? Okay, well, maybe first things first, just where we are. We're one of the worst sinners in the world. We're we're one of the highest (laughs) levels of fossil fuel use. We're the most import-dependent country. We don't have oil or we don't have much gas. We don't have any coal. We import a lot of those fossil fuels. So we have a security interest in getting away from that. We're a small island. I I can't think of it in terms of the states. I I guess probably size-wise, something like Vermont and population, the whole island is about six and a half million people. So it's not large. Um, We have a very significant renewable resource, though. I mean, our our wind power in particular, we're probably one of the windiest places in the planet. Uh, We're at that kind of point where the Gulf Stream hits northwest Europe. And in wind power particularly, I think the European Union has estimated we could probably be exporting up to 90% of our power, such as the volume of wind resource we have. Not surprisingly then in, in power generation, that's where we've gone. We, we've gone from pretty much nothing 10, 15 years ago to now about 27% of our electricity coming from wind power mainly. We have a small amount of hydro. And I think we're an interesting country in terms of it's the integration of that variable power supply in a synchronized grid, which is not very extensively connected. We have two electricity connectors to the UK, but by and large, it's an isolated all-island system. And I think one of the most interesting examples from Ireland, just from data wonking side, is I remember about 10 years ago, the, the head of the transmission grid saying to me, you'll never get more than 800 megawatts of wind on the Irish system. You can't run a synchronized system with anything more. And here we are about 10 years later, we have nearly two and a half, three gigawatts of wind on the system. There are occasions when we're running 50 
50 plus percent, 55, 60 percent of our power from a variable wind supply. And I think in fairness to the transmission grid operators since then, that's probably one of the most interesting stories in Ireland. It is the story that you can actually manage very large amounts of variable supply, even on an isolated synchronized electricity system. Um, secondly, I suppose what's interest, I think we have a very strong biomass capability. We have a relatively small population for the size of the island. We have a very strong growing climate for our trees and so on. But even there, I think what one of the lessons I've learned in recent years is I think there's limited capability for biomass, particularly in power generation, because of the volumes you need. We have a number of large peat-fired and coal-fired power stations. One of the options we're looking at is maybe switching that across to biomass. But one of the things I've maybe changed my mind in the last five or ten years, I increasingly see that as kind of a as not a very attractive solution. You've relatively low efficiencies, you know, two thirds of the heat's going up as waste heat. We don't have what the Danes have is a very good integrated heat and power system. We don't have district heating systems. So I think for us, the biomass side, it probably is as weak. I think in general, where we are going to go, you're never certain of this, things keep changing, but I think electricity will provide the key route forward. I think it'll have a role in both transport and heat. And the advantage of that is that it provides that balancing capability to allow us to use more wind. We have a million houses with oil-fired central heating system. If we can take them out and replace them with heat pumps, it gives you a very large storage capability for electricity. It gives you a demand that you kind of uses up that resource we have. The same in transport. I remember this has gone back a few years now, but there was a very simple statistic. If we could get 10% of our vehicles switched to electric vehicles, Every day, that would see us taking the top off the kind of demand curve for electricity, kind of, you know, that very expensive, very high carbon peak point on daily consumption around about five or six o'clock in the evening. Right. And similarly, in the middle of the night, it would fill in the trough at the bottom of demand by a similar amount, about 400 megawatts every day. That doesn't sound a lot, but... It's a huge significant gain in terms of balancing out the power. It belongs to the market rather than any individual. So how you capture the benefits of that is kind of significant. And last but not least, and I suppose I see for the lesson in Ireland or the really interesting lessons is it is this dance between variable demand and variable supply is what we need to get right. I think one of the things we're starting to do is we have a fair number now of industrial consumers who are starting to moderate their demand based on real-time pricing. And I think that similarly just helps that dance between variable supply and variable supply demand. And I think Ireland is starting to be good at that. And it's interesting if you look at what's happening in the European Union more widely. The 30th of November, the Union is going to launch its clean energy for all package. And I think the whole philosophy is in that space between getting balancing markets right, getting kind of close to half hour, 15 minute close on kind of balancing markets matching variable supply, variable demand. I think that's where we're going to go. I think it's where we can use our technology capability. Like most of the leading technology companies in the world, Apple, Intel, Hewlett-Packard, Facebook, Google, Twitter, EMC, pretty much every one of them are based here. I think they will have an increasing interest in that sort of balancing market and how it works. And I think that's where we have a real opportunity to be different or to be ahead of the curve. I hope so. Wow, that's just an amazing load of opportunity there. I, I really had no idea about a lot of that. I especially had no idea that there was 
uh, peat-fired power plant still. Listen, they're the worst. They're, well, it's they've got to be. No, it is a great company, and they're great people working on it, but we are burning soggy lignite, effectively. You know yeah, I mean? exactly. It's, they were built as, our, I suppose, a sign of our independence. It was a resource we had. We had very large bogs in the Midlands, and we've been using them for generating electricity for quite some time now. I think we're coming to an end of that. I think we have to provide employment to, to kind of allow people to to kind of get alternative economic development in the middle of the country. But from my perspective, both peat and coal-fired power station, we've one large coal-fired plant in the south, another in the north. The way I see us making the next leap is they will probably come offline. And then, I mean, I get them offline fairly much straight away. But at some time in the next five years, I think they're, if we're serious about meeting our climate targets within the Paris Agreement, I think we have to switch them off. I think we will we will probably move towards offshore wind as the next step rather than necessarily big further expansion in onshore because we're running into planning objections like a lot of countries on that. We have to get that planning right. We have to be sensitive to local populations. But I think the interesting opportunity is offshore wind is starting to come down in price in Europe very significantly. Our ocean area is 10 times the size of our land area. We have opportunities in the likes of the Irish Sea, which is where we could develop similar sort of offshore wind farms to the ones they're developing in Sweden, Denmark now. And the prices that that's coming in at, I mean, we're seeing prices excluding transmission connection of about from 55 cent up to 75 cent a kilowatt hour. If we can do that price offshore, I think it allows us to get another big chunk of wind on our system. And that's where I think is probably the next step. I think we'll use gas as an interim kind of balancing fuel. There's a reasonably good synergy between gas and wind as uh, you balance one off the other. But I think in time then, just as we get better and better at the demand efficiency side, which has to come first, then I think we move towards a 100% renewable system where we we match this huge resource we have with variable demand. And I think increasingly as well, part of that is we start to connect into the UK and to France more so that that also helps us to reduce the amount of curtailment of wind that you have to do. So we have a reasonably good flight path to kind of 100% renewables in my mind. I think it'll take a couple of decades, but I think it's economically and physically energy market-wise, it is a doable prospect for Ireland to make that switch. Huh. I do want to talk about that, but first I wanted to ask you, since you brought up the marine energy aspect, or at least offshore wind, I mean, it certainly makes sense that the majority of Ireland's existing renewable capacity is wind as its mature technology, and Ireland, after all, is an island sitting on the Atlantic with notoriously little sunshine, so probably not a great solar resource there. But longer term, what about marine energy potential? I mean, I I understand that marine energy is still in its infancy as a technology, and there's obviously a lot of engineering problems yet to be solved before it can really scale, mainly because the ocean is such a harsh environment, it just eats everything up. But if we look out, say, 30 or 40 years and think optimistically about the future of marine energy, what do you think? I mean, how much energy might Ireland be able to capture from the Atlantic? Uh, first, if I can, before I do that, I think solar will have a role here. I mean, solar's come down so much in price, and, and particularly on the eastern side of Ireland, we, it will be a good chunk of what our capacity is. So I uh, I wouldn't Hmm. underestimate the importance of that. But you're right. We're not the sunniest country in the world, so we're not going to be as strong here as it is elsewhere. And you're right. Marine energy does provide a real prospect. And I suppose just going back to the basic physics of it, the energy density in a wave or even in a tidal current 
is so much stronger than an air current that right. you have to think if you're thinking 30, 40 years that this must be something we can tap into. And again, as well as being one of the windiest places, if you look at a wave map of the world, the Atlantic takes a 2000 kilometer run at the country. So we have a lot of particularly wave energy, less so tidal. So I think it's worth the bet and it's worth investment. I think it is a bet. It's kind of a 20 to one bet. But if you're doing it over 20 years, at some point, you hope that you're going to find a device that captures that energy. And mm. um, I think in tidal energy, we've probably been slightly more advanced. There's an Irish company, Open Hydro. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a really interesting company based in the East Coast, where it has French owners now, but it's doing a lot of work in Canada and in France. They have some very large, really impressive technology that they're deploying. It needs to be in areas where you have a reasonably strong tidal current. They're probably the most advanced tidal company in the world, I think. They're really good engineers. They're really good company. But even there, I mean, I've seen start talking to someone recently about you know, how we get on, and there is a fundamental difficulty. Electricity and water don't go well together. So, I mean, you can generate the electricity fairly effectively using these devices. It's how you transmit it, how you actually yeah. get the underwater connection. It, yeah. Just just given the physics of water and electricity not, not easily matching is, is some of the development we need to see. On the wave side, we've invested a fair bit of research and development money looking at prototype devices and trying to encourage. We've set up a fairly advanced marine testing location, uh, wave testing pools and so on. We have an offshore marine wave testing location in Galway Bay. We've built grid connections out to the sea or if we're providing the plug and play kind of options. Um, I still think it's worth the investment because if we get a device which works, which can survive that marine environment and which can get the transmission of the electricity away from the device back to shore, then it'll be worth it because, as I said, the energy resource is huge. It hasn't happened yet. It's not easy. Uh, I've seen a lot of kind of projects we thought, yeah, this might be the one, and it just didn't turn out. But I think it's worthwhile investing in it because I think we're going to need everything. And I think, as I said, for us as a country, with our marine resource that we have, it's worth that bet. I think it makes sense for us to work with other locations with similar resources. So I suppose we've been cheering on the Scottish government who've been doing something similar. And I think Portugal has done some very interesting work in renewables across the board, and they've similarly been kind of trying this bet on marine energy. None of us have cracked it yet. I know the US administration was very keen. We had a US ambassador, Dan Rooney. I don't know if people know him. He was former, I think he owned the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was here for many years. He was great in terms of, he saw that bigger picture. He organized a lot of cooperation. A lot of the Irish companies were kind of working with U.S. companies. There were interesting examples. We were taking some oil rigs and hooking on uh, uh, wave devices to oil rigs because they've already got the kind of grid connection to shore, as it were. But no one has yet cracked it. I hope they do. If they do, we'll be, uh, we'll be the shakes of wave energy if it ever happens. Yeah, for sure. And there's no question the resource is enormous. So I was wondering how far Ireland can really go in relying on renewables. And you mentioned a minute ago, you think that in the long term, 100% renewables might actually be a possibility. But would that be within the context of Ireland being a self-sufficient island in energy? Or do you think it'll always trade power with the UK? No, I think we need to trade a lot more. I mean, I think renewables future will only really work if we get away from national kind of focus on energy systems. I think I said earlier on, I've been working with E3G and one of the projects I was working on is a project called the North Seas Offshore Grid Initiative. We signed that as a memorandum of understandings between 10 countries in Northwest Europe back in 2010. 
Uh, there's just been a revised version of that memorandum which has been agreed. And I think the UK, even with the uncertainty with Brexit, still have a real interest in working with their neighbours because when you move towards a high renewable system, you recognise that there's real efficiencies to be gained in sharing powers across boundaries. You know, the alternative where we each have very large capacity payments for backup spinning reserve in each of our markets is a much more expensive option. Even the alternative in terms of storage within national markets is, again, by comparison of having a, a market approach is really expensive. So one of the things I think is happening in Europe is we're starting to see that sort of regional approach. The the new commission, the one appointed two years ago, kind of set themselves. One of their main targets was to make Europe a leader in renewables again, but also to develop an energy union approach. The nation states have still got control over energy mix. But I think it's important that we work together with much greater interconnection. The union has set a target that there'd be at least 15% interconnection between each of the markets as part of this overall new climate and energy package that has been developed. I think the countries that have done it, maybe take an example like Denmark, they've really extensive electricity interconnection, north, south, east and west with Sweden, Norway, with Germany, and now new lines over to Holland. And their experience is that the market gains you get, you have to measure each interconnector, not just for the, the physical flows on any one interconnector, but if you measure the benefits you get on either end of the interconnector in terms of lower constraints, lower capacity requirements, then it makes a lot of sense to kind of interconnect. Europe has excess capacity. I mean, most Northwest Europe has massive overcapacity in terms of old coal and indeed gas-fired and nuclear power plants. Uh, I think rather than just maintaining them, I think to switch towards a regional market would allow us to shut off a lot of that old fossil fuels and still have a stable, reliable system. It requires trust. It requires really good network codes, market rules. But that's where Europe's going. Um, it won't be easy to do because the politics is difficult. Everyone, you know, every minister likes to have their own energy mix and security control and so on. But I think the future I see is one of integrated regional markets. Thinking very big, I see us kind of using hydro from the likes of Norway and Sweden, hydro from the Alps, and then mixing that with wind in the North Sea. I mean, North Sea offshore wind could provide, I think we estimated about 8% of Europe's energy needs. So if you start matching that resource with maybe electricity from solar from the south, that quite big kind of vision is, I think, the way we need to go. And I suppose the key thing to enable it is that the technology, both the cable technology, the HVDC cable technology, allows you ship power over long distances with very low losses. And the digital communication system that go with it allow you to do that kind of balancing trick I mentioned earlier on a much wider regional basis. I think that's the way to go. or That's the future as I see it. Yeah. You know, those who listen to episode 29 of this show will recall that Christopher Clack was very interested in this kind of HVDC regional grid. The North Sea's grid proposal that you're talking about, one of several, I think, proposed European supergrid schemes would certainly qualify and enable that kind of larger regional balancing area and a regional market across the whole North Sea region, like you're talking about. I think it's a really exciting prospect, but as I discussed with Christopher in that episode, we've seen several of these proposals sort of rise and fall already, most notably the Desert Tech proposal for Southern Europe and Northern Africa. 
it's not entirely clear to me why that failed. I think there was probably not really sufficient political support and commitment across all the member countries that would have needed to participate. So do you think that that kind of political support really exists and the political capital exists to actually build this? I think I do. I think probably Desert Tech was maybe 10 or 15 years ahead of its time in terms of yeah. there was also there was also questions around it. Like, was it really looking to tap into solar in North Africa or was it looking to build nuclear? There was all sorts of rumors around what was actually behind it. I know myself in the area I was working, Northwest Europe, I think we built an interconnector between Ireland and England. It was only five years ago. It was a 500 megawatt HVDC interconnector. The latest ones, you can get even bigger up to, I think, two gigawatts interconnector now on the same size cable. So the tech Technology is advancing. Um, mm. It's not without its complications. I mean, when you get to the arrival point, you do need to convert it back into AC, and those converter stations are huge. It's not easy technology. But one of the benefits, the modeling we've done, and we've done some modeling with Imperial College and others, is it shows it actually can reduce the amount of grid lines you need onshore in sensitive areas in Ireland, in Germany. And if you do it on an integrated regional basis, it may reduce the amount of actual grid you need onshore grid. And as anyone would know in this business, building onshore grid is not easy, it's not popular, very hard to do. So in some ways, it brings that efficiency with it. And I suppose the other factor of life where I think it will happen is we're already starting to see energy flows across countries that are having real effect. Uh, a lot of the time now, the French electricity market is prices is determined as much as anything else by what the wholesale price in Germany is. You get spillover. If it's a high windy or sunny day in Germany, it has knock-on consequences on neighboring countries. Right. So in some ways, I think the reality of managing this system is that we're going to have to do it in an integrated way. And the technology is there to provide it. And certainly from my work I've done with the European Commission and with the German government and others, I think they kind of realize that this is the next phase of the energy transition. I mean, the very broad picture as I see it, like this is a move towards 100% renewables. The first quarter was done by integrating renewables within the existing system. Now, what we're finding is the level of renewables at 25% is already changing the whole system. So in a sense, the next quarter of the transition means changing the system. And part of that is, I think, an integrated DC grid network. And I think how far that goes, I mean, it's very hard to plot technology out 10, 15, 20 years, but, but I think that will be center point of what happens next. And I think the real key thing to make in work is not so much the hardware, it's the market rules the network codes, it's it's the kind of software around it, the data management and the governance rules is what we need to get right. This is not easy, but I think Europe is probably as ahead of anyone in terms of doing this out of necessity. And I think what we learn here might have application in China and in the US as well. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're optimistic about the potential for that kind of political business agreement to make that work. And I'd like to Return to the question of Donald Trump's election to the presidency here in the U.S. I mean, obviously, everyone is very concerned that he will abandon the U.S.'s commitment to take action out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I think many of us are wondering if the rest of the world will continue to move ahead with their climate plans or if those who are opposed to climate action and energy transition will be emboldened at this point to try to throw a spanner in the works using the U.S.'s recalcitrance as cover. So how does the climate movement look to you right now from your side of the pond? 
From my perspective, firstly, Paris was a real success. I think the fact that we had consensus there, the fact that it was a fairly detailed document. I remember I was there the night before the negotiations finished and we were kind of looking at what might change and we were hoping is it wouldn't shorten, that it would be really long and detailed, which it is in terms of the reporting requirements, the kind of ratcheting up requirements, monitoring requirements and so on. So I, I thought the Paris Agreement was significant in that. I think, obviously, it's possible that Donald Trump, as head of the administration, might try and pull out of the Paris Agreement. My understanding is that's not easy to do. It would take four years. And if you go some of the shorter routes, for example, exiting the UNFCCC, I think that would have huge consequences for the U.S. Uh, across the world. I think Mary Robinson described recently that would make U.S. A, a kind of rogue state. So I can't believe that the U.S. would go that far because I think it, it would have real knock-on consequences. It may slow ambition in the States, but again, I would draw some confidence for three things. Um, firstly, to answer your question, Germany has just agreed a pathway to 2050 that's reasonably radical. Like They have made out their next steps of their energy into transition and I think it is a fairly ambitious program for decarbonizing the energy system, particularly fairly quickly. And I think if you match that with what's happening in California, California, as I understand, going to 50% renewables by 2030, a similar sort of ambitious approach. And also the fact that China is overtaking us both is, uh, you know, Europe has gone from having 50% of renewables investment in 2010 to down to 20% last year. We're actually looking at China and worrying that they might overtake us. But if you take those three centers, California, Germany, and let's say Southern China, they're the three technological innovation investment centers in the globe at the moment. So if all three are going strongly in this direction, and I don't see anything that President Trump could do to stop California per se, even whatever he does with the clean energy plans you have there. I think that, as I said, is going to become the dominant factor. And I suppose allied to the fact that the technology has come down and that increasingly those digital industries have an interest in combining with the clean energy technology change that are taking place. I think it may delay the process, which I think is unfortunate, but I don't see it stopping it. You know, that's a very optimistic view, and certainly Governor Brown in California and the rest of his administration has made it very clear that they're not going to slow down one bit with their efforts in energy transition. And and I think you're right. You know, the, the train is well on its way and actually still accelerating for energy transition in Germany and China. So I think there's definitely hope there. But, you know, it's hard not to see the election of Trump in a broader context. I mean, I think many people see in it the echoes of Brexit, since both were at some level a rejection of liberal trade policies and of welfare support programs and reflected sort of a hard turn to the right. And now I wonder how the U.S. under President Trump and the U.K. post-Brexit, if they might renege on their commitments to the global community. I mean, do you think that entities like, for example, the United Nations and NATO might survive this? Or can the EU still hold together enough to advance a coordinated climate agenda? I may sound optimistic in everything I said. The truth, I'm also scared to death politically because Brexit, to me, this is our nearest neighbor. I don't know how they're going to manage by pulling out of the European Union. I think that's going to have huge consequences. We've been joking here slightly when since that Trump election, we've been saying, what is it? Uh, I don't know if that song, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, Here I Am. Well, <laughs> our version, Jerry Rafferty. Jerry Absolutely. Rafferty, that's right. Yeah. Our version of that is Trump to the left of us, Brexit to the right, here we are. <laughs> here we are stuck in the middle of you. Um, so I, I, I'm terrified that the French presidential elections could go the wrong way from my perspective, and, and that would pull the European 
European Union into real difficult space. Nothing is certain on this. One thing maybe I'd share, one thought, and this is something we came through over the last four or five years ourselves. Listen, we were deeply unpopular at our end of time in government. We, we, were, we were in government a very difficult time in our country's history. We, we had a very severe economic crisis. We had to sort that out. We had to manage it in a very difficult way. But what the other thing we learned is like it wasn't easy to do some of the things we did on the energy front. Like we introduced a fairly extensive carbon tax system. It wasn't popular. <laughs> it was bloody difficult. And we lost a lot of political capital at the same time. One of the lessons I learned from it, and maybe it would same would apply from Brexit or from Trump, is why is it that that kind of view of the world, that conservative side of the world, sees the energy transition with such disregard and scepticism. Partly, I mean, I'd be critical of their analysis, but I'd also look at ourselves and say, we have to come at it in a slightly different way. I was involved with a group called climategathering.org in the last five years, looking at how we communicate this story. And I think it does behove us to come at it in a slightly different way where we we admit we don't know everything. You know, a lot of this technology is changing in a way where we, we have to adapt and learn and, and we will make mistakes and then we'll rectify it and we'll come back. I think we need to ask people for help rather than telling them what to do. You know, I think it is sometimes we have to hasten slowly, which is a difficult thing for us to do because I see the urgency and the whole climate issue. But I think that we have lessons to learn in the environmental movement in how we've communicated the need for this transition. I'm inspired by what Bill McKibben has done. I think he's right in terms of we need to stop putting all the emphasis on the individual responsibility. We do need to tackle the source of the problem. I think he's right with his divestment campaign or concentrating on that. And as much as anything else, A, because it's effective, but B, because politically, it's not us making people feel guilty or shamed. It's actually tackle the problem at the source. It needs government action. It needs international action to do that. Uh, we have that framework now with the Paris Agreement. We need to leave four-fifths of the fossil fuels underground. And I think we're better going at it from that kind of tackle the source of the problem way rather than just focusing on the individual. I think we may have lost people in the States and in Brexit by just kind of making people feel guilty and that they have to make this personal shift. I think it's better to make a system shift. I mean, one of the people involved in our climate gatherings was a former U.S. congressman, uh, Bob Inglis. He was a Republican from, I think, North Carolina. And he kind of was ousted by the Tea Party, I think. But I think it's important that we don't give up on that Republican Party, that we actually, you know, we should have a conservative voice for climate action and clean energy transition. It is the new economic opportunity. It does create a lot of jobs, but also it is genuinely centrally conservatism. It's conserving the environment. So one of the things I'm interested in is how you speak to that community in a way that isn't just looking down your nose at them. It's kind of saying, come on, help us out, be part of the solution. And I think that's one of the lessons we need from recent years. I think we've been too much preaching and not enough listening. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually. But, you know, again, I, that kind of brings me back to, you know, where the public stands on things. Obviously, transition has a cost. Sometimes the costs can be quite substantial. Are the Irish people willing and able to pay for energy transition? I'll be honest and say we probably lost a lot of public support in recent years, A, because energy prices were high, not because of, of our renewables transition, that's actually reasonably competitive here, but because a lot of people were caught in fuel poverty with rising oil and gas prices, but they associated it with, with the kind of clean energy change. And secondly, we, for a variety of complex reasons, we've lost some confidence of certain sections of the public in terms of building of wind turbines, building of grid. So it's not easy to get that right. And we need to go back to 
to do what I'm saying there. And rather than just trying to do public consultation where we're coming with the solution and we're kind of trying to batter it through, we need to genuinely ask people the question, well, where do you think this economy is going? Do you think this sort of route, which is competitive for Ireland and it is viable, should be the way to go? I mean, I have one assumption in all those that we do have to go towards a, a zero carbon system. But Ireland is as good an example as anywhere, probably the same in the UK, of countries that have to rewin public support for this. There is an underlying public support. You don't get to hear it often. It, it's only those maybe places where people are protesting against a particular power line or a particular wind farm that you hear a lot of resistance. There's much wider public support, I think, for the nature of the energy transition. And as much as anything else, because this is our own power, this is, belongs to everyone. And I think one of the changes we will move towards is much more community ownership, um, much more prosumer, allowing the consumer to develop their own power. That's, that's why I think solar is important on the roof. I think we do have to learn from what Germany has done well. I think the fact that they have such public support because they went that route is something that a lot of us could replicate. I, I think what that gives you, come back to what I said at the very start, that gives you the political capital, that gives you the consensus across different parties and with industry and with regulators to be able to make the changes. Once you get that in place, everything else tends to flow, in my mind, reasonably quickly. Okay, so let's end this on an optimistic note then. I mean, uh, optimistically, I could imagine Ireland being able to get to 100% renewables or near to it for grid power and heat. Mm. But of course, the hardest part is always transportation. And you mentioned that you see some potential for electric vehicles in Ireland, and, and that, what you said there, matches well with the report that I wrote earlier this year for for my employer, RMI, about how electric vehicles can function as distributed energy resources on the grid and help to flatten out the the load profile on mm. the grid. So as your fellow countrymen and, and our mutual friend, Colin Campbell, mm. uh, would be quick to remind us, peak oil may be out of favor as a meme, but it certainly hasn't gone away. And in fact, the starvation of CapEx spending in the oil and gas sector over the past two years or so with this crash in oil prices, I think everyone believes that as long as demand remains strong, it's just setting us up for yet another price spike in oil. So we cannot take our eye off the ball of the fact that energy transition eventually has to come to the transportation sector. So do you see the potential for Ireland to make a, a large switch to an electric transportation regime or perhaps using electric cars and trucks or maybe even electric rail? I do. And that's fine. Great to mention Colin Campbell is a good friend of mine. It's funny how things do change. I've changed my mind in one way. And that I think the way we will defeat peak oil or get over that is because we'll make oil too cheap. Yeah. If we can actually keep it below 60, 70, 80 dollars, whatever. I think the really big, what maybe Colin and others didn't expect was the scale of the tar sands revolution. And if we can keep oil cheap, we will keep those Venezuelan and Canadian and North Dakota and other oil and gas sands in the ground. And we won't be able to develop the Arctic or the deep sea waters in the mid-Atlantic or elsewhere. So I think we win by keeping oil cheap. I think electricity will be the way in transport. And now nothing's for certain because, I mean, I'll give an example of that. We were there at the very start and we were looking at different options. I remember meeting Shea Agassi, oh, Shea's company called 
Better Place. Better Place, yeah. And he was a great guy and really ahead of the game and everything. He was kind of advocating the system where you put in a battery, you take it in and out at a station. Yeah, the swappable battery cartridge. Yeah. I think that the Danes and the Israelis went with that. We looked at it closely and thought, nah, how would you get all the car companies to agree the design? And I think we were lucky in the sense we didn't go that route. We went the, yeah. we went the charging. That just shows how, you know, this is uncertain stuff. And, and we are yeah. talking about a complete revolution. But I'm encouraged by the fact what I hear is, you know, it's not just electric vehicles. It is with kind of self-drive or, or car sharing and other mechanisms. We may actually need a much smaller pool of cars. We may be able to be much more efficient in our transport system. Ultimately, we were kind of arguing all the time in, in these climate gatherings we were organizing. If we're to win, you can't just stop people going from A to B. You have to have a better alternative C. Like you have to have a better option. My experience driving electric cars and the technology with them now as well, they're better cars. They're nicer to drive. They're more efficient. They're cheaper. If you add in the kind of the lower maintenance costs as well as the lower operation costs, I think they're coming. So I would still bet on that. Exactly how it'll work, I don't know. I think the really interesting, what I've learned more than anything else when you start doing this stuff, it's the communications data systems around it. It's how you actually do the processing of the charging charging points and all these kind of how you how you integrate with the home energy management systems. It's whoever gets that bit right. It's the software data communication as much as the physical infrastructure. And to get that right, I think you actually need people's confidence. They have to trust the sharing of information. So actually, when I look at electric vehicles and home energy systems, a lot of these new technologies, I think it's actually about the ethics around digital information, how it's shared, how it's used, is what we need to get right. And I would like to think for Ireland, that's one of the areas we should concentrate on. We're not going to make too many cars, but we can actually do the software around the systems. And that's where I think it's going to go. And one the other aspect for Ireland, which is also important, there was a very great person I met a number of times, Herman Scheer. I don't know if you ever met him or her. He was a German SPD. He was the real revolutionary when it comes to renewables back in the 80s and 90s. That's right. And he wrote a book, Solar Century, I think it was, which was really good. He came back to actually saying the farmers are the front line here. This is another reason why, you know, going back to Trump and, you know, the, the vote was lost in rural areas. I think we need Irish farmers and American farmers and others to understand, as Herman Scheer said, the real front line in this transition is going to be farmers who will be able to plot out what you use land best for, how you store carbon in certain places, how you generate bioplastics and biofuels are not looking so good at the moment. But but I do think we shouldn't leave out that element in the whole mix because I think what Herman Shear said at the very start is true. This is a how we manage our land as much as anything else. Some of that will be solar, some of it will be wind, some of it will be biomass for very advanced combined heating power uses. I wouldn't rule out that. I mean, yes, electric vehicles are important, but I think we should start by winning over the farmers to understand that this is their future as much as anyone's. And I think if we got that right, we'd get the public support we need to make the whole thing work. That is a very, very trenchant point, I think, given where we stand politically today. Mm. Well, Eamon, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. You've just got a wealth of knowledge about this stuff. I, I only wish that we had more politicians over here that had your kind of energy literacy. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to share some perspective from across the pond. Chris, I appreciate, as I said, start, I know how little I know, and that's a first start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Thanks a lot. Talk to them. That was Eamon Ryan, leader of the Ireland Green Party and a member of the Communications, Climate, and Energy Committee in the Irish Parliament. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. 
Eamon certainly lives up to the legendary Irish gift of gab, and I confess that I could listen to an Irish brogue all day long. I just love the sound of it. But beyond that, I find the mix of opportunities and challenges in Ireland's energy transition just fascinating. On the one hand, you have this opportunity to build a much larger balancing area through the North Sea's offshore grid initiative, which is very exciting. If it were to be built, Brexit be damned, it could enable an entirely new set of possibilities for renewable energy across the whole of Western Europe. And on the other hand, you have the more distant possibility of a large build-out of offshore wind and other forms of marine energy, which, according to the Irish government, could, in theory, not only power the whole of Ireland, but even make it a net exporter of clean renewable energy. And I think it's exciting that these ambitious targets and technological development efforts have the potential to displace Ireland's peat-burning power plants, which must be some of the dirtiest power plants in the world, and in the process, clean up one of the most beautiful places in the world. If there were ever a place that could transition to 100% clean renewables, including all transportation needs, while delivering huge benefits to its people and to the planet, I think Ireland is it. Now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Those working on energy transition have been understandably distressed by the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. After all, Trump has repeatedly said that he will try to kill the Paris climate deal, kill the clean power plan, give the oil and gas industry everything it wants, and somehow restore the U.S. coal industry, not to mention many years of saying how much he hates wind turbines for spoiling the view at his golf course in Scotland. Fortunately, Trump's actual ability to stop energy transition in the U.S. is pretty limited. According to a report from Bloomberg, envoys from more than 190 countries currently working out the details of the Paris Climate Agreement in Marrakech, Morocco, affirmed their efforts to clean up the world's energy supply and limit climate change, including the European Union, China, and Saudi Arabia. The sheer economic advantage of wind and solar now makes energy transition irreversible, the envoys said, no matter what Trump does. Alden Meyer of the Union of Concerned Scientists said, Trump is isolated. Not one single country has said if Trump pulls the U.S. out of Paris, they will join him in leaving. Not one. In Politico, Mike Grunwald, who is our guest on this show in episode one, writes that even if President-elect Trump fulfills his pledge to withdraw from the Paris climate deal, the U.S. is on track to fulfill its pledges under that deal, a glimmer of good news for environmentalists mourning his election. As Grunwald explains, most of the work that needs to be done by the states to meet their targets under the Clean Power Plan is already too far along to be reversed. And there's really nothing that can bring back the coal industry as long as the prices of natural gas, wind, and solar remain as low as they've been. And as far as the oil and gas sector goes, reopening the Arctic and expanding offshore leases may score political points, but until an oil company is actually willing to put up large chunks of capital to resume exploration in those areas, it's not going to happen. The reality is that as long as oil remains below roughly $60 a barrel, there isn't likely to be much new drilling in the U.S., but none of the producers are planning big CapEx expansions. If prices do rise a bit, 
the new drilling that is done would be in the sweet spots of the onshore shale plays where costs are lower and drilling the next well requires a chunk of capital measured in millions, not billions like for offshore wells. But oil hasn't seen $60 a barrel for a year and a half, and it's not clear when it might see those prices again or for how long. The fact is, the U.S. production is down nearly 1 million barrels a day from its recent April 2015 peak, and that's a function of low prices, not restrictive policies. So put away the hankies and get back to work, people. The momentum of energy transition will not, cannot, be stopped by President Trump, no matter what he has said to score political points with gullible voters. Item 2. A new assessment by the U.S. Geological Survey found that the Wolf Camp Shale, part of the Permian Basin that spans parts of Texas and New Mexico, could hold as much as 20 billion barrels of oil, 16 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, and 1.6 billion barrels of natural gas liquids. If so, it would be the largest shale oil assessment yet. As usual, the press went nuts, calling the assessment a new discovery, an NPR report, even initially said that the USGS had made the discovery, which is absurd because the USGS doesn't do exploration, saying that 20 billion barrels were discovered and so on. It amazes me that this kind of energy illiteracy is still acceptable in the press. No decent publication would ever allow, for example, a financial writer to confuse cash flow with cash reserves or a health writer to confuse a lab breakthrough with a commercially available cure for cancer. But that's exactly the magnitude of the errors that are committed in the press on energy stories every single day and have been committed for as long as I've been studying energy. Why they don't have writers and editors who actually understand this stuff, even at a very basic level, is just beyond me. Anyway, here are the facts about this new so-called discovery. The Wolf Camp is an old play we've known about for decades, which is being redeveloped using horizontal drilling and fracking, with some 7,000 currently producing wells. The USGS estimate is just an updated, probabilistic estimate of undiscovered resources with a 50% chance that they exist. In fact, the very first paragraph of the USGS press release said that the oil is undiscovered. I guess none of the writers of the dozens of headlines I saw about this new, quote, discovery even bothered to read the first paragraph of the USGS announcement. Even if these resources are discovered someday, the USGS clearly states that its estimate is for technically recoverable resources, and that's a technical term, meaning that it believes that amount of oil and gas can be recovered with today's technology. It does not mean that they can be produced at a profit at any particular price. Being producible at a profit with current prices is another technical classification known as proved reserves. We don't know what price it would take to make these undiscovered barrels commercially viable, and it will probably be years before we have any of that information. But long experience has shown me that new assessments and discoveries generate hundreds of badly written articles, while actual production and costs and write-downs of previously claimed reserves are rarely written up at all. As the old Tom Waits lyric goes, You got it, buddy. A large print giveth and a small print taketh away. Item 3. A new rule proposed by FERC will finally create a level playing field for storage to participate bidirectionally in wholesale markets, including being compensated for all of the services that they're capable of providing. This is precisely the kind of regulatory evolution that we discussed in Episode 8 as being a crucial support that would help storage really take off, and so it could be a very significant rule change. As always, see the links in the show notes for more details. 
Item 4. Exelon and ComEd are attempting to pass an energy bill in Illinois that would implement a mandatory demand charge, which is being called the largest rate hike in U.S. history. In a state with only 700 solar installations, the move is a fairly transparent attempt to head off competition with the utilities by essentially killing the state's solar market through a legislative amendment instead of leaving the question up to state utility regulators, as has always been done in the past. Nationwide, demand charge proposals have been rejected or withdrawn in 13 states because regulators determined that the costs and control issues would be unfair to customers and no regulated utility in the country has successfully implemented a demand charge over all residential customers. If it passes, Illinois would be the first state to allow a demand charge rate design via a legislative amendment. And finally, item five. In a nice follow-up to our discussion on grid modeling with Christopher Clack in episode 29, a new model developed by Lapinranta University of Technology in Finland shows, for the first time, how a global renewable electricity system might work. The so-called Internet of Energy model visualizes a 100% renewable energy system for the electricity sector by 2030 for the entire world, represented by 145 regions all visualized and aggregated to nine major world regions. Very cool. See the show notes for more information. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. 